Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I'm the Youth Director here at Sardis Fellowship. This week, Pastor Rod Happel shares our Easter Sunday message on the empty tomb and appearances of Christ. Thanks for listening, and enjoy. The question I'm wanting us to kind of think about, though, this morning is what difference does the resurrection of Jesus make in my life? John the Apostle, who was the disciple of Jesus, you know, Peter, James, and John, he is the one who's written this account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus that we've been tracking with in John's Gospel. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote theirs earlier. John wrote his later, and he's had time to reflect, to think about all these pieces of the life of Christ and the teaching of Christ and to put them together in such a way is to help us, people who would hear the Gospel that he wrote, people who would read it for themselves, that they might know something, one main outcome that he wants from him taking the time to write down his first-hand observations of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, and this is it. He said, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, the book that he wrote, John's Gospel. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So everything that we've been doing since last September in the sermon series by tracking John's gospel is leading us to this very point where John says, hey, I've taken the time. I've taken the time to reflect, to think deeply, to understand not only what Christ did, but what he said and how it all goes together. And I've put it in one account that you may have life. We began back in September and we've been marching through this gospel pretty quickly. We have not been, you know, taking it verse by verse. We've kind of been looking at the main themes and chapters and that sort of thing. So we've been moving quickly, but everything has been marching up to this very point. It's been like a crescendo. In the last few weeks, we've been, you know, tracking Jesus right to the very end of his life. And today, it's the the resurrection. This moment has been building. It's the climax of the story. We just a few weeks ago started with the Lord's Supper. Uh, that he had with his disciples, and he washes their feet, right? So everything that happened in the upper room, and then going from there to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane, and this agonizing prayer that he prays, and then he's rested in that garden, he's taken to mock trials, to this false judgment of Pontius Pilate, where he turns him over to the people, and he's flogged by the Roman soldiers, he's crucified on that cross, he's dead and buried and in a tomb, but that's not the end of the story. All of this right up until this moment, including the resurrection and the ascension that is about to take place, is all what Jesus has called his moment of glory. His moment of glory. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This hour, this moment, was ultimately in the moment of the cross, whether or not the test of his faith and his will to obey the Father would succeed or not. Would he pass? Would he fail? We've looked at that. Now, if you were here on Thursday, you know that we focused on the cross and we had a beautiful time together remembering what Jesus did at the cross and the way in which he was faithful to the very end until he breathed his last breath. And just before he did, he uttered the words, it is finished. It is finished. The test that he had to stand in that moment of his testing, he accomplished it. He completed it. That was Friday, dead on a cross, laid in a tomb, but Sunday's coming. And that's where we're at today. Easter Sunday is really the pinnacle of the glory 
that Jesus wants to reveal to his disciples. And he wants them to understand something that I think that indirectly we're impacted by what it is that he wants them to understand. If John was writing any other story, if he was a different author writing a different story, the story would end like every story ends when a person dies. That's the end of the story. But John writes two more chapters. He doesn't end the story on Friday. He comes to Sunday. And that's what we're going to look at today. John chapter 20. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I've asked Debbie Arts, one of our deacons, if she would come and read for us John 20 verses 1 to 18. Uh, Debbie is married to John, and they have been for 42 years. Uh, Congratulations on that. Um, 30 years they've been attending Sardis Fellowship. They've raised their four kids here. They're married. They have eight grandchildren and praying for more. (laughs) So, Debbie, please come and read for us John 20, verses 1 to 18. Thank you. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Thank you, Debbie. Do you ever put yourself into the story that you're reading? I often do. I often put myself there and I'm wondering something. I'm kind of wondering who would I be in that story? Like, what would be the closest version of Rod in this story? Am I more like Mary? Am I more like Peter or John or one of the other disciples? What would have I done? That's kind of what I'm trying to assess as I hear a story like that being read. 
Now, Dr. Daryl Johnson from Regent College, whom we have referenced many times during this sermon series because he preached a course on preaching through John's gospel, and we've been listening to his series on that, he makes a great observation. He says, as you read through John's gospel, you're going to see something about John. He names places, he names people, he puts in different kinds of observations that are very specific details, and he calls this the ring of authenticity, this, this ring of truth. It rings true to us as we read that John knows about certain things, and he wants to make sure we understand those things as well. So for me, what I see as the ring of truth, of authenticity about the people in this story is the elements that John has included in it. Let's start with the fact that it is very unusual that John would record that a woman, Mary Magdalene, was the first person to come to the tomb, the first person to see Jesus, because her testimony wouldn't have been viable in court in that culture at that time. Why would you reference a woman coming to the tomb if you're trying to convince people of the resurrection, at least in his time? And I think what it speaks to is the fact that John is trying to be accurate to the events that took place. He wants to tell the truth about them. He's not trying to just, you know, manipulate his story. One of the other things that I find um, as part of this ring of truth is the bewilderment with which everyone in the story has. They're arriving and they're leaving and they're seeing stuff, but they can't quite figure it out. And everyone who's either seen something or is hearing it from those who have seen it, they are all completely at a loss to understand what's going on. There's not this instantaneous, oh yeah, that's right, Jesus rose back to life. It's not like that. They're like going, this doesn't happen. I mean, it's not until they have further evidence, what we would call empirical or empirical evidence, right? They need, to, they need more. And, and once they have that, then they can't deny it. But it doesn't happen until they've met with Jesus more than once. It doesn't happen until they've eaten with Jesus more than once. And it doesn't happen until they can see the scars that he has. And then they finally stop doubting and believe. For me, that rings true. Because they respond in the same kind of ways that I think we would be responding if we were in that story. They can't make sense of the disappearance of the body. They can't make sense of the stone that's rolled away. They can't make sense of the resurrection. They can't believe that someone would come back from the dead just like you and I would not have believed it if we were there ourselves. Unless. So let's look more closely at this story and see some of the details that I think we need to focus on. The first verse that we... My slides are out of order, so just give me a moment while I back this up, folks. Right there. It's Sunday, on the first day of the week. Why Sunday? You know, Sunday, being the first day of the week, speaks to the fact that God is doing something new. In fact, I find it interesting that our kid's story read these two, ver or one of the verses here, uh, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the old has gone, the new is here, the new creation. That's what he's doing, and that's why it's on a Sunday. He who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. God is up to something. There is something that starts at the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is lasting right through till today and will on into eternity. Sunday, the first day of the week, represents God's new creation work. Early, early in the morning, while it was still dark, darkness. You know, Mary Magdalene coming there was not anticipating an empty tomb. She was still in the darkness of her understanding that she couldn't make sense of the fact that the one that she loved, and this is all she knew to this point as she arrives at that tomb, is dead. This is the darkness. And John picks up on light and dark a lot in his gospel, right? At the very beginning in chapter 1, he said, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When he said that in John chapter 1, he is looking forward to this very moment, 
He's looking forward to the fact that there is one who comes to life that overcomes death. There is light that overcomes darkness. And that's what Mary Magdalene is about to find out. She's about to have her first taste of what that is all about. In John's Gospel, he highlights, he makes prominent the role of Mary Magdalene. Uh, If you were to read the other Gospels, you'll realize that they mentioned the other women that were with Mary Magdalene. She's named Magdalene because she's from a town called Magdala near the Sea of Galilee. And so she carries that as kind of like the way in which they distinguish that Mary from the other Marys, right? There's lots of Marys that have been following Jesus, but that's why they call her Mary Magdala. Why does he do this? He highlights Mary Magdalene because she is the first one. She is the one who is going to see Christ first. And if you look at all the other Gospels, her name always comes first. And she is the one who's attributed as the first person to ever see Jesus Christ alive. Well, that's pretty significant. Why Mary? Why not? I mean, I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. But I do know this, that she was the one that Jesus cast demons out of and set her free. And I believe it's something very beautiful that in this moment of her seeing her resurrected Lord, it's like Jesus has sealed her destiny forever that what he started in her life back then, he is now letting her be the first person to witness this resurrected Jesus Christ who brings us eternal life. Now, much has been said and done to try to align the various uh, details of the Easter story with the women coming to the tomb. It's not my goal to do that here this morning. What I want you to do is this. We're going to track Mary Magdalene's story. We want to see through her eyes what it was like to have this experience. When she arrives at the tomb, the first thing she notices is that the stone has been rolled away from the entrance. It it looks like she draws an immediate conclusion to what must have happened because she says they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. Well, what does she mean by that? Well, she means someone's moved his body. The grave has been robbed. Well, she's right in one sense, but uh, she doesn't quite understand how the grave has been robbed, not yet. She has something completely different in mind. And who is it that she has in mind when she says, they... Who's the they? Who would she think they might be that have taken the body? She might not know, but she may have in mind the religious leaders, the very ones who had taken Christ and had him crucified for blasphemy because he said that he is the son of God, making himself equal with God. That Pilate put up the king of the Jews and they wanted to discredit him as the king of the Jews. No, only that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Those authorities are the ones most likely that she believes have come and taken the body. That makes the most sense, seeing as how the disciples themselves are in Jerusalem, and what are they doing? They're not parading down the streets. They're hiding. They're in a room. They're being quiet and secretive. Why? Because they don't want the same thing to happen to them that happened to Jesus at the hands of those authorities. Mary returns to Jerusalem to where the disciples are and tells Peter and John, Everything that she thinks has happened, they have taken his body. And so Peter and John enter the story. Arguably, these two are the closest friends of Jesus, right? You will often hear that Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and they went further with him than the rest of the group. Um, They start running. Now, this is kind of interesting because the New Testament doesn't mention very often that people were running. And what does it signify here? Again, John in details in a ring of truth. What? The tomb is empty, someone's stolen the body, right? They're getting this information, right? And they run, which I think indicates a few things. One, they still have a little bit of hope. Could it be, right? 
It at least shows that they care about Jesus and they haven't given up, even though at the crucifixion of Christ and the laying of the body in the tomb, their faith was devastated. They had no hope. They figured they had it wrong that Jesus Christ was not the Messiah, was not the Son of God. Something is wrong. But at this moment, they run. John is the unnamed disciple who arrives ahead of Peter at the tomb. I don't think he's bragging. I think it just indicates he's probably younger than Peter. And he gets to the tomb, and he looks inside. But it tells us very clearly he did not go inside. John arrives, he bends over, he looks inside, he sees the linens, he sees there's no body, and then Peter arrives on the scene, and he just rushes right in. Impetuous Peter, true to his personality, right? Oh, poor Peter, he gets such a bad rap. Some of you would have run in too, right? John's maybe thinking, you know... um, Maybe disrespectful, it's a tomb. Maybe he's thinking um, cleanliness laws, or maybe his personality is just to observe, to observe and process and take it in. But Peter, he's that guy who's got to learn through touching, right? He runs right into the tomb. He's got to be right there to, for himself, discern what has happened, what is going on. It's interesting to note that John leaves believing and Peter leaves wondering. We get that from Luke's account that Peter, after seeing this, leaves the tomb, heading back to Jerusalem with John, and he is pondering, he is wondering, what have I just seen? Whereas John indicates to us that when he saw, he believed. What made them believe, or at least what helped John believe? The first thing is that, again, John is picking up on some details as it relates to the clothing, the grave clothes. Um, This is a bit challenging to figure out what's going on here, but let's kind of talk it through a little bit. What's going on? When they look in and they see the linens and they see the cloth, what are we talking about here? The first thing that I think is evident is that they had heard from Mary Magdalene, they have taken the body. So when they get there, they're assuming that they're going to find a completely empty tomb, but they don't see that. You see, if the body's been taken, the linens would be taken with it. They would all be gone. So that doesn't quite make sense. Secondly, John picks up on some unique factors about the linen. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. So you have the cloth, which was wrapped around the head. You have the linen, which was wrapped around the body. And it seems to be sitting in the exact same place that the body of Jesus was. Here's what seems to be the main thing that this text is trying to say. It's that the body that was once there on the inside of the linen is gone. It's gone. How does the body come out of the linen? If they took the body, the linens wouldn't be here. The linens are here, so where's the body? I think that's what they're trying to process with what they're seeing in front of them. Now, now some uh, people take it further than what the text says. They believe that they saw it in the shape of Jesus' head and body, but that's not actually what this text says here. It says here that the linens were in the place just as they had seen it when they laid the body there, but there's no body. Now, this is in keeping with other post-resurrection accounts of Jesus where all of a sudden he appears, right? Through locked doors, he shows, him, he shows up. And, uh, and so maybe it's in keeping that in the resurrected body, you can do these things like pass through doors and pass through linens. But there's another part to this for John, that seeing the grave clothes probably remind him of an event that had just taken place. And so he records this detail about the linens. You see, just a couple of weeks prior to this, Jesus had resurrected or resuscitated Lazarus back to life. Do you remember that story? In John chapter 11. And there's a contrast here between what they're seeing now in this tomb and what they saw when Jesus called Lazarus back to life again. 
So Jesus, uh, in a loud voice, he calls, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out in his hands and feet, wrapped with the strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Note that. He's wrapped. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. No one has to take off the grave clothes of Jesus to let him go. Here, he is no longer wrapped in his grave clothes. He is alive. And there's a contrast here. So Peter and John have seen this. And according to Luke's gospel, Peter ponders. And according to John's gospel, John believes. Well, what did John believe? I think John just simply concluded the fact that there's no way this body was stolen. Jesus has come back to life. But I don't think he fully understands that because we have this little qualifier in the brackets where it says that, you know, they did not yet understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So basically, John is starting to put the pieces together a little bit more quickly maybe than Peter and some of the others. But for sure, he has a thousand questions and by no way, no means has he yet come to a place of complete understanding the resurrectedness of Christ. No one at this point in the story is thinking, oh yeah, that's right, he said after three days he would come back to life again. They're not thinking that. No one is thinking, yeah, that's right. He's doing exactly what he said he was going to do. What's the big deal about the resurrection? He said he was going to die. He said he's going to come back to life. (laughs) It's a big deal. It's a big deal for them. It's a big deal for us. Everyone's pondering. No one fully understands. At this point, the story goes back to Mary Magdalene, who, it seems, has returned to the tomb to try and find out something about the body of Christ. Like she still believes someone has taken him. So she's returning, and it says she's crying. And that word crying actually means weeping. She's weeping, she's wailing, she's she's in deep distress. She still has the idea that someone's taken his body, and as she bends over and looks into the tomb, she sees two angels dressed in white. In Luke's account, it says that they gleamed like lightning. One is seated where the head of Jesus would have been. The other is seated where the feet of Jesus would have been. I've read this story a thousand times and I never picked up this before, but one commentary notes a connection between that and the Old Testament Ark of the Covenant. Two angels. The Ark of the Covenant was this gold-covered box that the nation of Israel would take with them. It was kind of symbolic of the very presence of God in Israel. It was placed in their tabernacle when they were in the desert and eventually it was placed in the temple and it was put into the Holy of Holies and it was a place uh, where once a year a priest would take a blood sacrifice to atone, to pay for all the sins of the nation of Israel and they would bring it into the Holy of Holies as one little room inside the temple, the inner part and he would bring it and present it right on the top of that lid called the mercy seat. Because in the moment that that sacrifice was presented before God between those two cherubim, angel-like beings, covered in gold, there was peace between God and the people of Israel. It had been atoned for. And he picks up on this amazing imagery that when Mary Magdalene looks into the tomb and she sees two angels, one who's seated at the head and one who's seated at the foot where Jesus' body had been laid, it's this beautiful picture of the mercy seat that what Jesus Christ has done in that moment has atoned for the sin of all humanity including Mary Magdalene's. It's a beautiful picture. Woman, why are you crying? This is not a disrespectful way to address a woman in first century Jewish culture. Um, It kind of rings in our ears kind of like, what? But it's actually like saying ma'am, ma'am. It's actually a term of endearment. It's respectful. Ma'am, why why are you crying? Uh, Through her tears, she still does not know what's going on. Someone's taken the body of Jesus. 
But then all of a sudden, the story tells us that she turns around and there standing in front of her is Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. Maybe she doesn't recognize him for her tears. Maybe she doesn't recognize him for same reasons that other people didn't recognize Jesus in his post-resurrected body. One text in Luke tells us that it was held from them. So we're not exactly sure, but for her tears might make sense that she does not recognize this person. She still thinks Jesus' body is missing and someone knows, and so she assumes this person to be the gardener. Do you, sir, know where they have taken my Lord? She's not understanding, and so Jesus asks the same questions that the angels have asked. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Of course he knows why she's crying, and of course he knows who she's looking for. What is he doing by asking these questions? He is trying to draw Mary into a reality that her mind has not yet been able to comprehend. I'm alive. Not until he says her name, Mary. Mary. You know, it's a beautiful thing to think that Jesus calls us by name. What is your name? Have you heard Jesus call your name? You know, earlier in John's gospel, he's referred to Jesus as the good shepherd. In fact, Jesus referred to himself as the good shepherd. And the good shepherd leads his sheep. He calls them out by name and his sheep follow him. It's this beautiful understanding of relationship. Do you understand that Jesus calls your name just like he calls Mary's name because he knows you and he knows you for who you are and he calls you to faith in himself? She blurts out in that moment, teacher, Most likely she falls down on her feet in front of him and clasps to his feet to hold on to him. That's the the picture that's kind of being described here, that she's holding on to him, don't leave, don't leave. And there's a lot of commentary on this, and I'm just going to cut to the chase as to what I think is happening here. But I think Mary is realizing, he's alive, it's really you, and I don't want you to disappear. (laughs) I don't want you to go anywhere. And so she's holding on to him to keep him there. And Jesus has another agenda. You're going to be my messenger, Mary. You're going to go back to the disciples, and you're going to tell them that I'm alive, and you've seen me, Mary. That's more than seeing that the stone was rolled away. Mary, you've now seen me. You're my messenger. Go tell them. And here's what you're going to tell them, that I am ascending. I'm in the process of it to going back to my father. Why? To make this way of relationship between all of us and God himself. That's what he had prayed for in John chapter 17, that we would be one as he was one with the father and as the father was one with them so that we might also be one with the father. Mary, go tell them. And so she does. And when she goes to see them, she says, I have seen the Lord. Those words, I have seen the Lord, I think speak to what each and every one of our hearts and our humanists want to know as well. We want to see him in order to believe. Aren't we just like all those first century people who were trying to grapple with their understanding? It's not to say that we can't believe a testimony of someone else. I'm saying that we are more convinced when we see it ourselves compared to when we just hear it from someone else. Is that not true to our human nature? We want to see with our own eyes And that brings me to Thomas, the one disciple who was not with the rest of the disciples on the first day of the week when Jesus showed himself to them. And we're going to read this part of the story now. Right here in John chapter 19, John 20, verses 19 and 20. So on the first day, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now Thomas, also called Didymus, which means twin, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. 
But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into the side in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas, this time, was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, you've got to love Thomas, right? Don't you? I love Thomas. He speaks for most of us, if not all of us, to some degree. He won't be convinced by words. He will be convinced when he himself sees it and not a moment sooner. What I think is beautiful is that Jesus gives him what he needs. He could have been stubborn about it and say, you know, Thomas, you're just going to have to believe those guys. Now, he comes to Thomas. He goes right to him. Thomas, put your hands here. Touch me. You know, Jesus has given us what we need to believe. Has he given you what you need to believe? I think for me, I believe a lot because of Thomas. I am so glad he's represented in this circle. I don't know, maybe you call it the level of faith of a mustard seed. But he's an honest skeptic who will not once again listen to words of one such as Peter as a testimony. (laughs) He has to see. Peter's testimony helps me. John's testimony helps me. Mary's testimony helps me. But the penny drops for me because of Thomas. Not until I can put, I can see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side. I will not believe. What is he saying here? You know what he's saying? At the same level of evidence that I saw him die, I need the same level of evidence that he's alive. Do you follow? If I saw him die on that cross, then this is not going to work for me. This is not going to work for me. It's this. Because I saw him hang, I saw him bleed, I saw him put in the tomb. It's a done deal until I can see. Thomas, the skeptic, we say. Doubting Thomas. And I say, praise God for Thomas! You would have asked similar questions, if not the same ones. Jesus did rebuke him for his lack of faith. He said, blessed are those who have believed who have not yet seen But God is patient with us and kind, and he comes to us in different ways. I want to close off by saying that it was just as hard for other first century Christians to believe in the resurrection of Christ as it was or would be for us today. Paul writes to a church that he planted in Corinth a few years later. I don't know exactly the number, but 15, 20 years later, Paul plants his church. And in his teaching to them, he says, I want to tell you something. If you don't believe my testimony, there's other witnesses that you can go to that are still alive. And here's how he put puts it to that church. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. 
By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. Does anyone want to believe in vain today? No, we don't. Anyone want to be duped in their faith? No, we don't. I don't. These Christians didn't either. And so Paul says to them, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. What's he trying to say? If you don't believe my testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the foundation for this good news gospel that I'm preaching to you, you can still go to Jerusalem and you can talk to a bunch of people. They're eyewitnesses as well. I am so glad for the eyewitnesses that God has given to us. What's the conclusion? Well, I'm asking this question. What difference does the resurrection make? What difference did it make for them? Their lives were transformed. They went from fear and hiding and cowardice and doubting to being these bold, brave proclaimers of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of which they died for. Most of those first disciples died a martyr's death. They didn't die because they were bad people. They died because of one thing. They believed in Jesus Christ, resurrected from the dead. And for that, they were killed. Hey, at some point, if you don't, if you know this isn't true, you just bow out. You go, hey, before you stab me, before you cut off my head, before whatever you're going to do, you know what? I don't really believe. It was just a joke. It was a hoax. They didn't do that. You know what they did? I know what I saw, and I can't deny what I saw. He came back to life again. He is the resurrected Lord. And it's not just a matter of seeing something that's hard to explain. It's seeing something that gives me hope for this life and hope for eternity. And you know, you might take my life, but you can never take my eternal life. We might look at this and go, I don't know, Rod. I'm not sure what difference it really makes for me. I'm not one of those first apostles. I don't think I'm going to have to die for my faith. Maybe not. But yesterday afternoon, I visited a man in our church, Art Wilkie, in the hospital. Art is in the last few whatever of his life. No one knows exactly the date, but the family called me because they believe it's close. And as we stood around Art's bed, at his moment of where he's getting closer and closer to breathing his last breath, I want to tell you something. The difference that the resurrection makes is that at the moment you, leave, you breathe your last breath in this world, you are taken by Jesus into his presence forever to be with God. That is the difference the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes. And so I invite you to put your faith and trust in Christ and that you would believe that he resurrected to life for you and he calls you by name. I'd like to invite the worship team to come up at this time as we're gonna sing a couple songs in response, but I also wanna lead us in prayer. So team, feel free to come on up. And, um, and as you're doing so, I'd like to pray. Join me in your hearts. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the fact that you are the author of life. Uh, we, ha we heard in the kids' story how sin entered into the world and it came with this curse and it came with death and it came with death meaning separation from you. But in this garden tomb, Jesus conquered death and you came back to life that you might be the life giver. And John has taken the time to write this gospel and these things that we might believe that you are the Son of God and that by believing we have life and life eternal. I pray for each person here this morning that they would not leave this place without knowing that you've called them by name and they are your child by faith in Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. 
if you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.